Welcome. It's great to have you all joining us. You know, in science, some things are more outstanding than others. Um, you know, for example, did you know that there's a species of antelope that's able to jump higher than the average house? And this is due to its powerful hind legs and the fact that house, the average house can't jump. So, <laughs> yeah, well, part of it. So some things are more impressive than others, too. So, well, it's time to turn it over to someone who is always ready to jump in for science. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. Well, you've probably heard that knowledge is power, but did you know that in many cases that's literally true? We're going to be talking about information engines, engines that run on information. And uh, you wouldn't think that that would be a type of power, but we're going to talk a little bit about thermal dynamics and some of the theoretical stuff, and I think this will be really exciting for you once you understand what I'm saying. So it started back in the beginning of the industrial age, and everyone was trying to figure out how to make the most efficient engine. And they started coming up with these laws about thermodynamics. And one of them says that if you take something that's really hot, something that's really cold, and you put them close together, the cold thing will start getting warmer, and the hot thing will start getting colder. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? But the law says that it doesn't go the other way around ever. You never put two things together and one starts getting cold and one starts getting hot unless you put in energy somehow to make that happen. And about 150 years ago, a guy named Maxwell came up with a dilemma, a way that might break this rule. And he said if there was this character that was smart enough and capable to be able to see the atoms in the hot thing and see the atoms in the cold thing, he would be able to tell that when something gets hot, it means the atoms are jiggling more, right? And the cold things aren't jiggling as much. Then he could have a little door. Let's look at this. You see the little guy up there, and he has a little door he opens. When a hot thing comes towards the door, he opens it and lets it through. And then when a cold thing comes, he closes it, and he could open and close the door at just the right moment over and over again and separate those two temperatures. And he would actually be creating energy in a sense. And this would break the laws of the second law of thermodynamics. And this was a really troubling thing for theoretical scientists studying this. And they argued about it and tried to figure it out. And they finally concluded that it wouldn't break the law because the amount of energy to maintain and collect the information would balance out and everything. So, so the world is still held together. It's OK. <laughs> It's okay. But it's still very, very interesting because in this situation, we would be converting information about those particles, those atoms and molecules, into power, into workable energy that we could use. And this idea kind of uh, progressed, and recently, we've actually been able to build experiments that make information engines like this. I want to show you another version that's very similar. See the little guy? They call it Maxwell's demon, right? <laughs> he didn't call it a demon. That, that was the name that they gave it. But it's really this fictitious character. Let's say that there was a particle moving around, and it was connected to a spring. 
and the spring was connected to a platform that would lock into place at a certain position. If you were to just lift that platform, it would lift the red ball and you would take work to lift it, right? Now, let's say that you just left it there and just the random jiggling from the heat would make that particle bounce up and down. You can see the little gray line, it's an equilibrium. And every once in a while, that particle would bounce higher than usual. And right at that point, we move the platform up and we're not doing any work because the, the particle moved up on its own. And then it would be at equilibrium there and it would jiggle and then when it would go up again, we would do it again. And so we would be getting work done by moving a mass up higher and higher and higher. And that's the, the idea of this information engine because if you can move something up, then you're doing work. And if you can do that just based on information, then that's alternative to, you know, just using your muscles and pushing it up. So some researchers at Simon Fraser University actually built an experiment to try this out. And they got results that were, they were able to move the particle 10 times faster than other attempts, which, which is uh, about the same speed as a fast swimming bacteria. So it's not very, very fast, but <laughs> still impressive. And then they were able to produce quite a bit more total work than other experiments, about as much as what you would see in a molecular cell, a living cell. So it's still very interesting research. Let's take a closer look at how they did it. First, they did that spring design, but instead of using a mechanical spring, they used a laser, and they focused the laser to make what they call optical tweezers. And these would, the, the uh, physics of the optical tweezer are very similar to a spring, where if it uh, falls away further, then the, it's like the spring is pulling more on it, you know? The optical tweezers are pulling more as it comes down. And then they used another laser shining the other direction to see the position of the particle, and then they hooked that up to a computer and an FPGA. Let's look at this diagram. Check this out. If you, uh, I love this. <laughs> I have to give you a little uh, side note. Uh, I really love FPGAs because it's something that I've actually been able to uh, work with. And, and an FPGA is a field programmable gate array. It's a special kind of computer chip that you write code to tell the chip what to do. And you can do some amazing things that you cannot do with normal computers. And I'm going to explain in a minute why they used an FPGA. But let's look at this diagram. So on one side, they have the green laser going through. And it goes through that little AOD box. And that box is what tips the laser just a teeny bit to one side or the other. And that's their optical tweezer adjustment right there. And then they have the blue light that shines through back to that camera. And that's how they can actually see with a, you know, a photo of the position of the particle. And then they have a red light shining the other way that goes to the sensor. You can see down there it's QPD, where the red light goes into. And that's an optical sensor that gets measurements of the position of the particle. And so uh, the particle is, ex uh, is held up there between, what's it called, MO2 and MO1, right there in the, the little chamber there. They have a liquid there holding the, where the particles are. And the laser shoots through and is holding one of those particles there. The red light shines through so they can see. It tells the FPGA where the particle is and if it's going up or down, up or down. And then the FPGA has to decide really quickly whether or not to move the optical tweezer up or not. 
And they had to decide really, really fast in order for this to work. And that's why they needed the FPGA. They're uh, getting the measurement and deciding within like 20 microseconds, 20 millionths of a second, which is way faster than you could do if you were just watching the particle. You wouldn't be able to see it move fast enough. And so that's why they needed the FPGA. It's pretty incredible that they could actually get these results, this experiment. You can see it's pretty hairy. There's a lot going on. Uh, but on the other hand, when it's done, what did they do? They just moved the little teeny particle. <laughs> and so it uh, makes you start thinking, now, now what's the point? The point is that if we can understand the way that information and energy are related and the mechanics at this level, then it will allow us to make huge advancements on the energy efficiency and performance of our computer chips, for example, because we are down at that scale. IBM's latest uh, fab that they're just coming out with is two nanometer process. That means that the gates inside of their chip are two nanometers across, which is very, very teeny. Uh, you know, that's uh, 10 to the negative 9. That's really, really small. And uh, so at that scale, this kind of understanding is really, really valuable. And also um, molecular biology. A lot of the technologies that we're looking at and doing at that scale, this will be very useful. And who knows, maybe someday we'll have information engines. And uh, just imagine if we hook that up to a cellus, all that information, you know, all that power. It's, it's like what it does to the students, right? You are uh, charged with that power from that information. So I guess that knowledge really is power, isn't it? <laughs> That's all the tech we have the time for. All right. Now it's time for Breakthrough Moments in Science with Tobias. So what do you do with a new tool or a new toy? No, not a toy, a new tool. Okay, we're going to stay with tools. Um, when you get something new, you have more power to do things, right? I mean, we've, as we've seen technology change over the years, we've gotten new kinds of tools that help us see the world in different ways. Um, for example, I mean, we used to, if you do something that you know, people do, like if you go to a concert, and you, this is how we used to watch concerts. Okay, this is how we watch concerts now. We don't even need the guy on the stage. We could just have a phone with the video. Okay, I mean, these have just changed. I mean, they went to the moon, took five pictures. You go to the, the bathroom, go to the sink, take 100, you know. You know, you got to get it perfect. That's, uh, th things change, okay? But every tool that we get, it changes our abilities to do more than just take selfies to be able to observe the world around us. And one of the big questions that uh, was something in science that had a huge focus on was what is the world made of? What am I made of? What are the things that make up the world that we see and experience? And one of the big breakthroughs that opened that up was microscopes. These tools that let you look at things up close that you couldn't make out with the human eye. And in the early years, we're going to jump all the way back to the 1600s, they had really rudimentary microscopes. And we're going to talk about this gentleman, Robert Hooke. And he had a microscope, and you can see it there. Uh, on the right side is this glass sphere, and there's this candle, there's an oil lamp. That's actually directing light 
down to a tiny point that he's going to look at. And he has this tool and he wants to start exploring and start looking at, you know, the, the world around him. So he starts to look at a bunch of dead things. Now, I know that sounds creepy, but it is. But he starts looking at dead things. He starts looking at trees or pieces of trees. One of the things he looks at, and the one we're going to talk about tonight, is a piece of cork. Now, cork, you know, they use it sometimes on corkboard or they use it to stop a bottle. It's actually part of a tree. It's like the bark edge of a kind of tree, a cork oak. And so it's this special kind of wood. And if you know about cork, it's kind of, it's more squishy. It's a little bit spongy seeming. Well, he looks at a dead piece of cork under his microscope. And one of the things Robert was really good at was making drawings of what he found. And so this is a drawing that he made of really, really, really up close looking at a piece of cork. And he was really fascinated by what he saw. And he started to try to describe these things. And he, he described them as they're, it's like they're almost these little chambers or rooms. And eventually he named them cells. And some people think that he named themselves af themselves after uh, the monk cells in monasteries. They had all these cells that the monks would stay in. Some people say it was bees. Okay, the bees is probably a little more cool. But, um, I mean, at least they, they didn't call them bedroom. Okay, biology class would be very different. Okay, tonight we're going to study uh, living bedrooms. Please turn to page 40. No, he called them cells. And that's really when the name cells came around. Uh, for describing this. And this, there was a lot more to discover, obviously, but this was the first step of identifying these little patterns and chambers inside of this substance that was living. Now, remember, this wasn't a living piece of tree. It was dead. So what he saw was just the remnant of what remained of this piece of tree. Well, this would be something that other people would look at, and then we have to jump 200 years, about 200 years later, when a German botanist, and his name was Matthias Schleiden, he was looking at leaves with his own microscope. Now, this isn't a picture he took, obviously, it's, it's in color, but it's, it's maybe sort of what he might have started to see. Now, he was looking at pieces of tree that actually had living cells in them, as we'll discuss, but he noticed that every single plant that he would look at under his microscope it had these cells that Robert Hooke described, but they weren't these little empty chambers of nothing. They were actually busy, and there were things going on. And he came to the conclusion that every tree is made up of these cells. Now, at the same time, also in Germany, this physician, Theodore Schwann, was doing roughly the same thing, only he was looking at animal tissue. And he noticed that every piece of tissue he looked at, he was able to start identifying certain kinds of cells. And he also came to the conclusion, only not about plants, he was talking about animals, that every tissue inside an organism like an animal is made up of cells. Now eventually these two um, German scientists would meet and they would both agree with each other and they would start working on something that is now called cell theory. And that is that every living organism is made up of living cells, and that's kind of the basic building, blo building block. So these two scientists, um, Schleiden and Schwann, you know, you got to hand it to Germany, you know, at the same time, I sh and I should say, like, Schleiden and Schwann, okay, we're not just super, we're super, okay, <laughs> <coughs> but they, this is a really big deal to think that all living organisms are made up of cells, 
and they're the basic building blocks of life. And some organisms that are really simple, they can even be single-celled organisms, just one cell, all the way up to organisms that have thousands and millions of cells and different kinds of cells, but all working together to make one organism, like the human. And so this was a, a really big breakthrough discovery. Well, there was one more big piece of this cell theory that they were still trying to decide. And that was, so we've got these animal cells, we've got these plant cells, and you can see there's some real differences there. But how did these cells become what they are? How were they made? How were they created? One of those two scientists was sure that they, they just show up it's like they crystallize out of the liquid or whatever they're in. They just start coming in. He, he called it free cell formation. So official. But the other one was sure that wasn't how it worked. Well, eventually, another scientist would bring out another theory that they would discuss, and that is that every cell is created from a pre-existing cell. So if, you wanna, if a cell is made, it had to be made from another cell. And as they researched this more, they determined this is the case. And so that's part of the cell theory, and that literally if you have a cell, it has the ability to, and so we're going to use very you know, high-quality diagrams here, building blocks, but they literally can split into another cell, and they can replicate themselves. And there's different ways that they do it, but that was the last piece of their cell theory that they put together. And it's a pretty amazing thing to watch. I This is a really tight shot of a kidney cell, and you, the microscope system that they use makes it look like it's glowing, but this is actual video of a kidney cell splitting. And so you can see the different pieces, and we're not going to get too deep into all the different parts of the cells, but one cell makes another cell. So if, if you get a cut and you put a Band-Aid on it, it's not that the Band-Aid is magical and it heals that wound. It's literally your skin and the rest of your body that's needing to mend that, duplicating and creating more cells to actually close that cut, which is pretty amazing. So, you know, and you know, I'll just throw out some numbers. They say that 300 billion new cells are produced in your body every day. 300 million old cells die every minute. There they went. That's pretty amazing. And you have a total of 37 trillion cells on average in the human body. So, I mean, that just changes my life. Next Valentine's Day, you want to up your game? You know, you just jump right over all the I love you with all my heart stuff. Just go straight to I love you with all 37 trillion cells. <laughs> and you just better hope that they're a biology nerd, or otherwise they might look at you funny. Or they might, if they are a biology nerd, they might say something like, even the bacteria cells especially the bacteria cells. <laughs> Thank you. And now introducing Roger Billings. dancing. I know how you do it. <laughs> how do I do it? I, I know how you do it. Seriously. I figured it out. How do I do it? It's the frogs. It's the frogs. 
It isn't it? Admit it. You do it with frogs, right? Yeah. <laughs> the frogs. I'm going to prove it. How did you know I do it with frogs? I, I figured it out. Oh. show you. It's my secret. <clears throat> Can you just hold this right here for me? I can't see. It's okay. Just hold it right there. Wait, really? What is it? This is no fun. What is this? That's how you do it. See? I can't look up see there. it. May I look? Yeah. Oh, didn't you get to see it? Sorry. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Okay, just hold it like okay. this. I'm sorry. Did I block your vision? Yeah, you did. Actually, it was it. But, uh, you know, anyway. Okay. And then, do you remember this was there? Uh-huh. And then there was the flying saucer, mm -hmm. right? I remember that. It was pretty fun. Uh-huh. And, and guess who happened? is driving the flying saucer? Oh, my gosh. The frogs. <laughs> my right? secret. My friends. Yep. That's Timothy right there. Did you know that? Timothy. <laughs> Okay, never mind. We have to get serious. Why? <laughs> because we have trillions of cells. That's kind of And they're a mainly lot. made of hydrogen. Yeah. That, that's just, you want, you want to hold that for me? That's just really exciting. Okay, let's get serious. Did you think that uh, this making energy out of information was an interesting thing? I did. Confession, I don't understand it all the way. <laughs> you know what? I was thinking, hmm, he's definitely talking to some of the college-age students, isn't he? Yeah, I realize. I, yeah. I need to. But it was very interesting, and uh, I'd just like to, to say to all of us that didn't understand what he was talking about, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm one of but those. I didn't like it at all. It is really kind of an exciting concept, and if you really want to fully understand the remarkable stuff he was explaining, then you should sign in on a solace and study, 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 study. Because every time you climb up to a new level, you can see further. I had an experience when I was younger. I was a Boy Scout, and I went up camping, and I went in the mountains. I lived out in the Rockies. And so I climbed a mountain. And you know, when you're climbing the mountain, there's trees and things around. Well, the mountain I was climbing was very, very tall. So we got up to a certain point, and the trees stopped. They call it the tree line. And it was so high, sounds a little better than what, but it's really high, and trees don't grow up there. It's just the rock and some remnants of snow and so forth. And Still, you couldn't see much. And then when I got up the top, I could see over the mountain, and I could see the, forever. It's like you see other mountains. You, I could see a lake. I could see a lot of things. And that's kind of like learning. As you're learning, it's like you're climbing up a mountain. And as you get each level, you're able to see things you could never see before. And I really enjoyed it. But I was thinking, you know... If I hadn't learned about entropy, I probably wouldn't have understood some of what he said. And if he'd started talking about entropy, then some of us would have really been confused. Right, John? Yeah, he knows what I mean. But it's, it's really exciting, and I think uh, this is something I'm going to stay tuned to. Really interesting. We talked last time about hydrogen. Remember, we showed CO2, the greenhouse gas. We showed hydrogen. 
the amazing, most popular atom in the universe. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for that. What is it's it? so cute and little. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a baby atom. It's just one proton, one wow. electron, and does amazing things. And you know, um, we have been looking at all the science fair entries. Wow. And we have all of the dance entries, too. The robot dance entries. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they're amazing. And we're going to have a lot of fun with them. We're trying to get organized. There's a lot. Thank you for entering, all of you. It was really, really exciting. We have a lot of very young entries. We have older entries. We're going to have a lot to share with you, and we definitely plan to do that. So I hope you're well into two weeks now on next year's science fair because it's coming up. Anyway, as a student, I became interested in the science fair. And in the 10th grade... I decided I wanted to build a car that ran on hydrogen. And the reason I did that was because in the ninth grade, I had an amazing science experience. Had a wonderful teacher, Mr. Mitchell. Mitchell, Mr. Mitchell was a very, very good provocative science teacher and he broke water in two with electricity. He called it electricity. Electrolysis, not electrolyzed, but electrolysis. And hydrogen came out over here and oxygen over here. And he filled up the balloon with hydrogen. And I watched this with, with big eyes and a lot of enthusiasm. And he lit a little fuse on fire. The hydrogen balloon, balloon was so light that when he let go, it went floating up the ceiling. And I didn't realize it then, but it went up faster than a helium balloon because it's lighter. The fire climbed up the fuse, it ignited the balloon, and it exploded. Pow! Right in the classroom. Pow! There's was this that, loud pop. Was it really loud? Do you want to hear how loud it was? I do. Okay, I'm going to bring a hydrogen balloon then. I'll, really? I'll show you how loud it was. It was pretty loud. <laughs> okay. And then I saw this flash of fire, just pow, real fast. And he wrote on the chalkboard. That's like a whiteboard, but back in the day, you know. <laughs> he wrote on the chalkboard that hydrogen and oxygen combine together and they make water. And to think that that fire that I saw was water being born just did things to me. That's what? Well, we got a, a little inquiry from a student here. She says his dad's, her dad's trying to make carbon on hydrogen and... Would you please give him some tips, I please? love her dad. <laughs> wow. Someone's got a really, tips. really great dad. Well, you know, I found out it was a little harder than I thought it was going to be, but it's mm -hmm. worth it. So anyway, I, I thought if you could make water by fire, well, then you could run cars on it because inside a car, they have a fuel and it burns and it pushes a piston down mm -hmm. and... That piston could turn the wheels, and it could be hydrogen instead of gasoline. Then there would be no pollution, be no greenhouse gas, no carbon dioxide, that is. And I just thought it would be a wonderful thing. So in the 10th grade, I decided to build a hydrogen engine. Now, the only problem is I didn't have an engine. But I did have a lot of determination. So during the summer... I went to my dear neighbor that did not like to mow her lawn, but she had a gasoline lawnmower. 
And I said, I would like to mow your, your lawn for you this year. And she says, okay, I'll pay you. And I said, I don't want to be paid. All I want is at the end of the year, I want the lawnmower. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of an old rickety lawnmower. She agreed. I mowed. I got the lawnmower. I took it home. I pulled it off the mower, mounted it on a piece of wood in my laboratory. And there was a little bit of confusion there because my dad called it his garage. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mounted it. And, uh, you know, it was the kind where you wind the rope around the engine, and then you pull the rope to start it. I was able to negotiate with my dear mother to get a bottle of hydrogen from the welding store, and I hooked it all up, and long story short, I could not make it run. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I couldn't make it run. My 11th grade year, I couldn't make it run. Got to back up a minute, though. In the 10th grade, when I couldn't get the engine experiment to work, science fair was pouncing upon me. And so I switched to a project of germinating seeds. I've talked about that. And I won my local science fair and got to go on a wonderful Navy science cruise. But in the 11th grade, I went back to the hydrogen engine. Still couldn't get it to run. It was very stubborn, like all the good things are. And so last minute... I decided to switch to a laser project. Last and I have minute. to talk about that. You last know what? minute you switched yeah, to lasers. Yeah, last minute. Like, okay. it was only a month or so. You're not normal. Yeah, and, and I should have done, I should have switched sooner because I ran out of time. But I got this idea. And, and I have to tell you about it because I had something happen this week. My idea was that I could amplify a laser beam signal that was carrying information. And if I could do that, it would make a really amazing thing happen. And the idea was, you know, lasers work by atoms being excited. And, you know, atoms are kind of like uh, people. When, when <laughs> atoms get excited, they absorb energy. Okay. And when they absorb energy, it pushes their electrons out into a bigger, faster orbit. And that's a high energy state for the atom. Then eventually the electron falls back to its normal orbit. And when it does, that energy has to be dissipated somehow. And so atoms shoot out a photon of light. A photon is just a little teeny chunk of light and it would shoot it out. And the amount of energy that an electron can be pumped up to and falls down is very precise so the light coming from a particular atom is always the same. That's why a neon sign is always orange and a, a, a mercury sign is always blue because that's the color of light they give off when these atoms jump up and down. Well, my idea was if I could get a whole bunch of atoms inside of a laser tube all excited at the same time, and then I brought in a real weak signal, which would be a light beam, but it's been uh, encoded with data, like could be computer data. And, but it's so weak it can't go for another 10 miles. But it comes in here, and as it goes past these atoms, as it passes an atom, there is a property that makes lasers possible where right as light is passing, the electrons fall down, and the light kicks out right with the light that's passing. Now, I don't know why it does that. 
I was very fascinated when I read that it does, and it triggered all these ideas in my little brain, but it does. And so my theory was that as this real weak signal, why, why is it weak? Because it was transmitted a long ways away, and it came through one of those glass fibers. And as it came through the fiber, it kept getting more and more tired because some of the light would always leak out of the, of the fiber. So after it goes a certain distance, it starts getting too dim to use. And normally what you have to do is you have to decode that light, turn it back into electricity, have a big computer to reprogram it, and put it back in a new laser. And that's very expensive. And if you're going to have a laser beam going long ways, like a fiber clear across the, the country, you need a whole bunch of cost of fortune. My ideas, just make an amplifier. And if you could amplify it with the digital information in the light, if it was blinking just right to keep all the data, it would be a big thing. Now, I'm telling you about something that I don't want to get into tonight, but you have to get this. Because we are going to be upgrading our Celis data center. And we're upgrading it. Right now, our data centers connect to the Internet at the rate of 10 billion characters per second. Wow. That's because our students study so fast. <laughs> I mean, it's an accelerator, but think of that. 10 billion characters a second. And we have four of those connections. So we really pump out the data. Now, that doesn't count what we do. Like, we have a data center over in Hong Kong that goes to our students over there, and we have those too. But our big data centers in the U.S. have four of these 10 gigabit pipes. That's a lot of data. But we're getting more and more students, and it seems like the smarter they get, the more they like learning, the more they study, the more they're on, the more data we need. So we're going to upgrade from 10 gigabit. Now, let's remember that's 10 billion characters a second up to... 1,000 characters a second. For those of you who like to hear the words, that's one terabit. That is really cooking. It's cooking so fast that uh, it's very, very hard to put that much into a laser beam signal. In fact, kind of the limit on what we can put into one laser beam signal right now is 25 gigabit. We're doing 10. And we only know how to really do 25 gigabit in anything that's practical and commercial. And we want to do 1,000 gigabit. What do we do? Well, we're looking at a multiplexer that takes 40 laser beams. Can you do that again? <laughs> no. <Aww>. 40 <laughs> laser beams, 25 gigabit each. And it goes into a prism and connects them all into one fiber strand. Cool. All 40 of them going together. But they're all different frequencies. So we have 40 different little channels. And then it goes through the fiber out to the internet. And when it gets to the other side, it goes through a prism that separates them back out into 40 streams. So we will be able to do 1,000 terabit. And I was trying to figure out how to do this. The problem is the place where we need to connect to the internet is 45 kilometers away from the internet connection. And we can only send these laser beams 
10 kilometers. So it's not strong enough. So our Mr. Wizard on this subject found a amplifier that will boost the signal strong enough to go 45 kilometers. And it will do all 40 at once, which is really neat. And I said, ah, that, that won't work. They're all. And then all of a sudden, I realized they're using my high school invention. How fun. It's like 20 million years later. But uh, isn't that is that, it, it just that is made amazing. me really, really fun. I thought, you know, the reason I'm doing this science fair project is so in 50 years, <laughs> when we need that? this for a cellus, we'll have it. But I, it was exactly, and the sad thing about this project is when I got it done, uh -huh. okay, let's be real honest here. When I didn't get it done in time for the science fair, I took my experiment, had my amplifier, and I was exciting it. I, I was putting the power into it using my ham radio transmitter, because that's all I had. And I had it so it was lighting up and things, but I didn't have it completely built. So the judges, judges you know, the people that judge, they came through the science fair and said, what do you got here? And I said, well, it's not finished. <laughs> and they said, well, is it going to work? Oh, I'm sure it's going to work. And I said, really? Okay. At least you're honest. After the science fair. And I won the local again, but you know, the locals, there's only a few people. <laughs> After the local science fair was all over, I finished my project. And it was too late for this year's science fair. I didn't want to wait till next year. So I wrote up the results and entered it into the National Westinghouse Science Search, really? which was another contest. And it won. So you really did yeah, this, I really you? did it. I got it done, and I entered it. And now we're going to use it for a solace, and I think that's really cool. Now, i got to be fair. I kind of invented this concept and proved that it would work. Someone else has done a lot of work to make this commercial project, which I didn't get to help with. But I'm sure going to get to use it. How and it's, it's just fun to see how technology can grow. And science fairs are inspiring. But I do want to get back on point. Okay. That really popular, Adam. Hydrogen, hydrogen, the most abundant <laughs> element in the universe, hydrogen. I wanted to run this engine on hydrogen. And my third try, my senior year, 12th grade, I went back at it again. And this time, I decided I've got to, I've got to be more determined. And when I would wrap that rope around the engine and pull it, it would go, bah, 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 bah. I'd do it again. It didn't give me very many tries to find out why it wasn't working. So now I'm a senior. Now I take chop. So I put a pulley on the motor, on the engine, and then I put another pulley on an electric motor. And I mounted it on my board, too, and I put a pan belt so they were connected. So when I turned on the light switch so the electricity went to the motor, it started turning. It turned the engine. The engine wasn't running, but it was turning because the electricity was turning it. Mm -hmm. And then I started doing all these things to try to get it to run on hydrogen. And since it was running, I had lots of tries. And finally, I found out what was wrong. And the thing that was wrong was that this engine had been running on gasoline for its whole lifetime. And inside of the cylinder, 
there was all this yucky carbon from gasoline that hadn't burned completely. And when you have an engine that you're going to run on any fuel, the piston pulls down like this, and it pulls in fuel and air getting ready to burn. And then it has this valve that closes, the piston compresses it, and it fires. Well, when I was pulling the hydrogen into the engine, the hydrogen was seeing the hot carbon inside the chamber, and it was igniting the hydrogen with, before the spark fire. It was the carbon buildup that made my engine not work for three years. But when I had it on this electric motor, so it just kept running, 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 even when it didn't work and I turned on the hydrogen, the hydrogen was burning in there and it was popping and coughing and choking and backfiring, but it was also burning the carbon out of the chamber. When carbon gets hot, it makes CO2. Get rid of that stuff. So literally, the hydrogen was fixing the engine. That's amazing. It was amazing, but I didn't understand. I'm just wet in this world. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, when all the carbon was gone, it just started running. Did that, I didn't do did anything that confuse to, you? Oh, oh, oh. I could have done somersaults. It, it started running and running. I wasn't sure. I turned up the engine and got faster and slower, and so I turned off the electricity to see if it would stop. Turned off the electric motor, and it just kept running. And lo and behold, I had an engine running on hydrogen, and it, it was the most thrilling moment. It was, it was so thrilling. I started calling, guess what, guess what? <laughs> what? I did it. This was this one girl that I knew, you know, it was kind of special. I did it, I did it. I ran an engine on hydrogen. She said, well, that's wonderful. What is hydrogen? <laughs> Can you imagine having a friend that didn't know the no. most popular element in the universe? <laughs> anyway, so next step was to convert my dad's hydrogen Model A. We're going to talk about that later, but I want to show you the engine. Would it be all right if I showed you the engine? I want to show you a few things. We'd love to see it. Let's start with, with the bragging part. Okay, this is what happens when you keep doing the same science fair project for three years till it finally works. You win the little local science fair, they send you to the international science fair. That's the big one. The year I won, the international science fair was in Dallas, Texas, which I'd never been to Texas before. It was exciting and I got to go. And when I got there, they looked at my experiment, and they looked at my paper and everything, and I want to show you the certificate they awarded me. Can you see this? International Science Fair. Can you see whose name's right there? <laughs> Roger Evans. <laughs> yeah, Billings. Gold and Silver Award. And can you see Overcoming Automobile Pollution Hydrogen Fuel? That is amazing. Yeah, and you know what? That was back before we even had pollution. <laughs> So you really are the hydrogen man. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. But, but no, I want to I kind of get serious about this. You know, uh, could I show them the, the newspaper story? Okay, here's the newspaper <laughs> story. Look at this. This is, <clears throat> here it is, number one, newspaper. Hydrogen, number, there it is. Oh, that's number two. Number one, number one. Come on, do I hear number? There's number three. 
didn't, oh, didn't have the thing. It's the newspaper article. I'll take this, though. We'll take them in any order we can get them. We don't have it. All right, well, then I'll just have to tell you about it. It's hydrogen is science fair number one. <clears throat> have you ever lost control of your slides? <laughs> what happens when that, what, what happens? Well, it, it's no big deal they to me because I'm door? used to not being in control. <laughs> because of me? Okay, well, let's go look at that first one you had again, please. This is the guy of the science fair, and this is not my nice edited one. But can you see that little engine right down there? Can we zoom in on that at all? Zoom, zoom, zoom. There. Look, there he is. That guy with the big slick smile. <laughs> and that little lawnmower engine, that was the guy. And I actually ran it at the local science fair. At the international science fair, they wouldn't let me take any hydrogen inside the hall. So I told them it works. And it was really kind of fun. Now, uh, I'd like to show you that engine kind of up close. And what I've done is I have made a little video. We, since then, we fixed the engine all up and made it kind of pretty. So I made a little video to show you up close so you can really see what this looks like and you can also see how it works. Okay. Can we run the video, please? This is the world's very first hydrogen engine. It's a Briggs & Stratton lawnmower engine. As you can see, it has a very simple homemade carburetor shown here in blue. I actually built this in high school in the school metal shop. Hydrogen goes in through the carburetor and is injected just above the intake valve. The black pipe above it is the exhaust. And as you can see, I ran it with no muffler. It wasn't necessary to have a muffler on a hydrogen engine because the combustion burned so fast that the fire was out before the exhaust valve opened, so it wasn't nearly as loud. Now to start this engine, we're gonna turn on the electric motor, which is coupled by a pulley and is situated behind the engine. As we turn on the power switch, it begins to turn. Now we're gonna open the valve and let hydrogen start to flow into the engine. If you listen carefully, you can hear a change in the sound. Now we're gonna turn off the motor and it'll be running all on its own hydrogen power. Okay, someone is going to ask, so what's the big deal? Yeah, what's the big deal? Am I someone? It's hydrogen. It's hydrogen. It's hydrogen. And you, you can't imagine how exciting that was. Now, I had that little pipe coming out in place of the muffler, and of course, the warm gas is coming out of the engine, and I hold my hand in it, you can feel it puff, and it didn't stink. Wow. It didn't smell like we were burning some hydrocarbon because we were just making water inside that engine. That's it was making it run. And the real interesting thing is that water was going out into the air like water vapor. Someday it would probably condense and rain somewhere else. Someone said it's going to make it real rainy. Well, it wouldn't be enough to change the weather. But the hydrogen became water, and then the water could then be split apart again to make hydrogen. So it's a cycle. 
We're not going to run out of water or hydrogen because we cycle it and we use it over and over again. Uh, I wish that you could all just put your hand in the exhaust and fill it and smell the clean air and, and see how fun that is. I've kind of got a raw video mm -hmm. that <laughs> shows this a little bit more. It's, it's not, you know, really fixed up like this one. But I think you can maybe feel a little more what it's like to really be there at the engine. You want to watch this video? Uh-huh. Now, you're not going to be able to hear me talk very well because the engine's run. So I'll talk and it'll just run. But this is the same engine. And you know, someone's putting their hand, that's Dr. Sanchez, filling that exhaust come out. And there really is a neat thing. I'm turning off the hydrogen now. And when I do, it shuts off. Uh, can, we, can we run that just one more time? I want you to look right at the beginning. I've got my hand in it because it's just coming out of a little pop of gas. And it's just so neat to have it, uh, okay, you stop it, to have it be pollution free. Uh, many times I've had the opportunity of uh, actually taking a, a chilled glass like I put it in the fridge, get it out, and hold it there, and the water would condense, and I'd get a few drops in the bottom of the glass. It was clear as clear as clear, and I'm on Omni Magazine <laughs> drinking the homemade hydrogen. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really kind of an exciting thing to it be is. able to see your, yeah. your science fair go there. Yeah. Well, now, I thought that uh, it was just going to change the world overnight, and I learned a little bit more about how big the world is. And it's taken a lot of years. And it turned out that the amount of hydrogen that it took to run an engine was too much. It was more expensive than gasoline. And so we continued working. And as I, I tell you the story in some of these next few sessions, I'm going to show you how we made the car go three times as far on the same tank of hydrogen. Wow. And we did that by making it work more efficiently. And wow. that's the kind of stuff you have to do. You have to get it to work and then you have to optimize it. You have to make it safe. You have to make it commercial. You have to make it all these things and then it really catches on. Uh, science is so exciting. And it's, it's just fascinating. John talked about how you can get power from knowledge, because knowledge is power. When you know how to do something, there is so much that you can do. And I, uh, I, I'm just thrilled every time I learn about something new that I can do because I get a new piece of knowledge. And I hear about a new technology that was, was just broken through. Now, I heard something today that really excited me. Uh, John said that IBM has a new fab. That means it's a plant that makes computer chips. And they have shrunk down the die size, which means they, they make dies. Dies are discs about like this. They look like this. This happens to be a coaster for a drink, so this won't scratch so the table. So it's not a real plant yeah. that makes computer chips. It's a manufacturing plant. A manufacturing yeah. Didn't your people tell you that? Well, I'm just learning. Anyway, <laughs> so if you can imagine a disc like this, so they put a disc in a machine and they grow layers on it of silicon and there are different, there's 
negative layers, positive layers, and they, they project light, and it's like pictures on the in layers, and that becomes a computer chip. And they make transistors all over here all connected together, and some of our computer chips today have more than a billion transistors on them, which is why computers are so powerful today. But you can only get so many on here. But then they shrink the size of every transistor. If they cut the size in half, they can get twice as many on. And to get down to two, well, no, two, that is, would you say 10 to the ninth, minus nine? That is extremely small. I would love to make our own transistor chips. I've made a personal computer. I plan to make another one in the future, and I would love to make our own chips. Uh, I was reading in the news that there is a, a Ford factory that makes Ford pickup trucks, and they have all of these Ford trucks ready to go, but they won't ship them to anybody because they're missing one microchip that they can't get. The factory that makes them got behind during COVID, and uh, the supply chain's all backed up. So all these trucks are just sitting there waiting for a microchip. I think we ought to make more microchips in America, and I'd really like to do that. And if we could make one that's that small, it'd be really amazing. I also love what we learned in Science Life. Microchips are made out of silicon. Silicon is sand. And that's what we've been using. That's why they call it Silicon Valley, because they make computer chips out of sand. But somebody figured out how to make computer chips with diamonds. And the diamond chips will run faster, and they'll be able to handle more power. And the real neat thing, the breakthrough that makes it possible to grow diamonds like that, hydrogen. Yeah, <laughs> you grow diamonds in a hydrogen atmosphere, and that's how they're oh, making those neat. big, beautiful, perfect diamonds. So they'll be happy. Those diamonds will be happy. And diamonds are happy. Yeah. Diamonds are a girl's best, best computer. That's what I think. I would love to be able to do that. And you know, to get excited about technology, if we can make, not if, when we make, <laughs> Computer chips out of diamonds, they will be the fa fastest, the best computer chips in the world. And I am sure the very powerful people in various countries and in many companies are trying to get production of computer chips based on diamond. And I'm just throwing my hat into that. I don't have a hat, but I'm throwing it into the race. <laughs> I want to be part of that. I want to do that. And that's what technology allows you to do. Now, it'll be a race. They're going to try and figure out how to actually get them into production. I'm going to try and figure it out. I'm going to get my brainiest people thinking about it. And there'll be a winner. And the winner is going to be the ones got the guys that studied hardest in the cellus and, <laughs> and pulled this off. But, but understanding these technologies, you can see where the big opportunities are, and you can direct the development of technology and and make the world more and more wonderful. So did, really I, did I hear you correctly that you're going to build another personal computer? Are you eavesdropping? <laughs> I, I am. <laughs> We're trying to have a private conversation here. Well, I'm just sitting and listening. Don't make me get my poster out again. 
There we go. There we go. Yeah, yes. my people. <laughs> yes, as well. I I definitely am planning to. I call it the Jedi computer. It's got diamonds in it. Mm -hmm. I hope it has a diamond CPU, but the Jedi. You know, uh, why Jedi? Because I have a website. And if you go there, you can't find anything yet. I own the website, but it isn't working yet because I don't have the computer yet. But it's spelled Jedi, J3DI.com. That's cool. And now all I need is the Jedi operating system to go on this new computer that is going to be made especially for Acela students. That's my goal. That's awesome. It's probably going to have gold key in it. Built in. And gold key built in. You know, you know, if if there's a shortage on gasoline right now, it's because someone broke into our uh, pipeline. Yeah. They they hacked into the computers and messed things up. And you know, it seems like every single day a whole bunch of people are getting hacked and someone's going in and even schools are having their data taken away. And you know, Shame on hackers, but student data is sacred. <laughs> That's is. off limits. It is. Yeah. And we need to stop this. And so the mission of Gold Key is to develop a technology that makes the Internet safe and secure. I call it the trusted Internet. Mm -hmm. And it is the Internet protected by Gold Key. Wow. And that is something that we're working very, very hard on. And I plan to have Gold Key right inside every Jedi computer so that nobody can mess with your private data. I want one of those. Put your money where your mouth is. Okay. <laughs> I will. <laughs> I want one. This is how I get funding for my projects. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyway, I'm having a lot of fun, yes. and I hope you are too. I am. Learning is either hard, it is hard, but you know, so is football, so is sports, yeah. so is tennis, so is ballet. Mm -hmm. Anything really worthwhile is hard, but it's fun. It is fun. And so keep learning, learn hard, study hard, mm -hmm. um, and you're gonna do great things. Thank you, see you next time.